Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are local and independent grain traders, from seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts. They can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two whilst sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing 11th of April. It's a Tuesday Market Report starting day today and I've only said the 11th of April because it is my birthday. I'm 42 and wearing quite well, I think. Anyway, with that happy little thought of memory, we're going to start with a market that has been under pressure again. It's not been a very healthy week. It's been quite volatile. It's gone down, down, up, and is in the process of kind of sideways today, which is, goodness knows what happens next. Anyway, we have some firm views on old crop wheat, which we've mentioned previously, and I will reiterate that I do think the market is going to come under intense pressure on old crop feed wheat. A number of people will keep it until next year if they've got the space. A lot of people believe they've got the space, but they haven't. And therefore, they're going to sell it at a later date. And I truly believe that the old crop wheat market on the futures will trade down to 190, where it got down to a couple of weeks ago, or lower. Now, I could be completely wrong on that, and I accept there could be a political moment with Vlad or his mates or something. But I can only see a very big surplus of old crop feed wheat. So I can't be any clearer. As I say, if I'm wrong, I'm terribly sorry and don't listen to me. But I do think on this occasion I'm right and I have been repeating this story for about £40. So in the end I'm going to be right anyway, which is always a good thing. Just glanced across at my wife then because she's in here listening to me do this and I said that bit about being right. Anyway, so Old Crop Feed Wheat X Farm, May, at this moment 190 If you were selling it for July, I'd pay you 195 Oilseed rape. Got back up to £400 a tonne with some rallies. We booked a whole load of the tonnage that uh, we tried to get hold of everybody we possibly could. It's slipped back down again. It's about 368 at the moment. Again, a very volatile market. On paper, that market shouldn't be as low as this. But the market remains insane longer than you remain solvent is one of the phrases. So I guess we're going to sit out and try and get 400 again at some point for the remaining tonnage we've got to trade. Old crop feed barley, 165x, not much interest in it. There is a market, I can't see it doing much. If it goes up a tenner, whoopee. If it goes down a tenner, I doubt it'll do that, who knows. But there's not much of that left to trade. Malting barley, there's still the odd market out there for any old crop stock. But if you're not waving it around or trying to sell it at the moment, I don't know what exactly you're waiting for. We'll come on to new crop prices of that in a minute, and it's not that much different from what the market is trading at now. So I would urge you to get on with selling your remaining stock of old crop malting barley. The only upside being the weather going terribly wrong on new crop, which is going to benefit your new crop prices anyway, but that's a hell of a risk, bearing in mind the whole crop looks absolutely amazing at this point in time. Never looked better in lots of respects. So moving on to new crop. That market is also suffering from sentiment from the old crop market and there is a very good looking European crop in the ground. So sentiment for a farmer looking at an amazing looking crop of wheat has to say the potential is as good as it's ever been and the price is 200 and something pounds a tonne. So maybe I ought to do something. Yes, it's not 300 pounds a tonne, 
but that's like, you know, wishing you were dating Beyonce as opposed to, you know, whatever's happened in your life. So the point is that at this moment, the futures are trading at 214.50 as I record. The ex-farm price nearest, damn it, is £200 a tonne ex-farm for November, which represents about 194.50 delivered to store for harvest. Lower prices than people are prepared to really enjoy, but mostly that is above the cost of production. Although there is a number of debates in that. Some people are saying, yes, it is above the cost of production and others are either paying themselves too much money or they're paying too much rent or something because the cost of production figures above 210 means that there's a loss going to go on with wheat production. I don't actually believe that, forgive me. But it isn't a great picture. I think the biggest hope on new crop is clearly the weather going wrong. And for what it's worth, gut instinct, I do think there will be weather events In the States, they've got a late spring in some areas. They've got a very big drought going on, which is not being rectified this weekend, which was one of the weather forecasts. And so therefore, I think the speculation on new crop will begin to come from the States, and I think that will start to lead the market up. However, in Europe, we've got the sentiment of old crop dragging in the opposite direction, and in the short term, that's going to win. But if you took a view in between now and the end of May, will the price be 215 on the futures on May the 15th? Yes, but I think it might have visited 200 in the meantime. I mean, it's complete speculation, utter fantasy, but hey, that's just what I think is going to happen for goodness knows what reason. Uh, feed barley trades at about a £17 discount to wheat on new crop. Malting barley prices are still reasonably buoyant. I mean, you would get delivered to one of our stores for winter malting barley. Craft is our variety. And 165 nitrogen would be worth about 230 delivered store and spring barley about 240 so that as a historically it's a brilliant price relative to the last 12 months where the market's been crazy because of the ukraine war it isn't that wonderful but it is it or should be a profit and certainly with the spring barley crop it's been established exceptionally well in our part of the world there are issues i mentioned last week with the north of the country in scotland who haven't got on quite as well as they'd like to and there is still rain or passing through periodically so I don't know how much they've caught up this week. Certainly some drilling's been done, but there is an issue with some of their crop going into the ground a little bit late. That's about it for the market. It's a pretty glum old affair. As I say, the 11th of April's my birthday, uh, so hopefully something marvellous will happen on that date. Other than that, the only thing I've got to talk to you about is the Doing Podcast Walk, which I'm going to say is going to be at the end of this month because we've kind of crammed our diaries full of all sorts of things. So the 28th is the date, Friday the 28th of April, and we are going to do a walk from Cromer round, kind of up past the zoo, Benji Manor Zoo, through Felbrig, and then round to the back end of Cromer and back down again. So I no doubt we'll find a coffee in the middle of that at Felbrig Hall, and we'll possibly find a pint at the end of it in one of the pubs in Cromer, or several pints if you get in the mood, because it's going to be a Friday afternoon anyway. So it's going to be an 11am at the what three words for the meeting point the car park which i'm afraid you'll have to pay for car parking chaps and it is about a seven or eight mile walk so it's a fairly long period so the what three words for that walk on the 28th is important flute stove okay got that important flute stove i look forward to seeing more people than last time and the pied piper gets more and more people following so look forward to all meeting you and maybe having a pint with you Cheers. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours.
The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. Right, today I am back on the interview front and the rest of them been sacked from the office for such boring podcasts. And I've got with me Craig Hodgson from Mills and Reeve. So hello, Craig. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Now, talk us through exactly what you do. What's your role? Well, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and have a tour of your wonderful facility. Uh, I lead the firms, which is Mills and Reeves firms, food and agribusiness sector. So it's an important sector for our business. It represents about 10% of our 140 or so million revenue. So it's a huge part of our business. It's fascinating industry to be in, as you can imagine. There's a huge amount of activity going on in the sector. My personal day-to-day job is a corporate finance lawyer, so I advise food and agribusinesses basically buying and selling other food and agribusinesses. Okay, it's a good opportunity for a joke here, isn't it? Yeah, that $25 million offer for doing grain isn't enough, Craig. No, absolutely not. Them, Completely them, undervalues the go business. Go back to the table, lads. You know. Anyway, oh, sorry, did I, did I say that on air? Oops. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> So if I wanted to get my bank to do something sensible for me, and I can't put it in the words they understand, I come to you and I say, look, can you talk these idiots into understanding why I want that money and you'd be able to get it for me? Well, we'd certainly try our best to negotiate the best terms with the banks. Uh, We're quite fortunate in that we also act for the banks as well, so we know what works for them and what wouldn't work for them. So it's always been useful to understand what the bank's position is. It's the language, isn't it? It is the language, and it's trying to convert that language into plain English that clients can understand. Yeah, the plain English and the kind of like surprised, slightly disappointed face quite well. (laughs) But I can't get through my point. I've tried for years to get finance on, as, as I was saying earlier before the mics were on, get finance on stock, you know, as a business that's got a massive turnover price and a professional storekeeper, you'd think people would go, well, he knows what he's doing. And I couldn't. For years, I tried and tried and tried. And eventually, you know, the bank we were with just wouldn't entertain it. However high up the scale we went to get to someone who understood it. And finally, well, the bank we use now is Santander, and they could see what I was talking about and did it. But I was truly grateful. I do think it's a problem in the industry getting money out of banks. No, it isn't. I think I mentioned to you that we've got a particularly strong relationship with certain banks and we know those individuals within the banks who know your sector particularly well. And that's the key is to ensure that you talk to bankers who know your industry and who backed industries in your sector before and understand what are the issues and are fully aware of how they can be overcome. I mean, I'm going to run on about banks now. We won't dwell too long on it, but the reality of modern day banking is a computer says no. And you know, quite often people aren't, it's outside their remit and they have to go up and up and up until you get differed from Wales who says you can't do it. Yeah, there is that. And some banks still have some local credit, which is helpful, where actually the bank managers do know the local sector and know the local market. But you're right, these days, it tends to be more of a centralised function where it will go to credit where those individuals may not necessarily know the business. And it's just, as you say, on the numbers. And if the numbers say no, then it doesn't get approved. Yeah, so the agricultural sector is lacking in experts, in my opinion. I mean, you're clearly, you know, head of Mills and Reeves. You've got an understanding of it. 
but it must be frustrating going and finding people who really don't understand what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, it is frustrating, but what I think we're starting to see now is certain banks are prepared to introduce sustainability measures in their bank facilities. So we've just acted for a borrower where they've just been borrowing quite a significant sum of money for a refinancing with a bank not too far away from this part of the world who've supported another business not too far away from here. And that's been brilliant because we've been able to negotiate what those sustainability criteria should be, which has resulted in a reduced margin. So actually, if the business is able to improve its ESG creds, then it gets a reduction in margin. And that's been a really interesting ESG project. ESG creds, just for the non-initiated? Yeah, it's, it's essentially making sure that you're on top of environmental, social and governance issues. Yeah, not government. Yeah. No, governance issues. Sorry, getting a bit tongue-twisted. <laughs> say, because the government change their mind, don't they? They have a policy that they finally mentioned food in. And Therese Coffey at a recent NFU conference wasn't really interested in what was going on ran off the stage as quick as she could. And, and <laughs> so the next government coming in in, you know, 18 months' time is going to change it dramatically anyway. So that is. I sorry. mean, there's been a lot of change in policy, hasn't there? I think, thankfully, now we've got a bit of stability at government. But what we need to see is that filter through to DEFRA. I know there's a lot of, a lot of issues. Uh, the farmers, quite rightly, have been up in arms around what's going to happen to payments, rural payments, etc. So I'll be interested to see what happens there. There's obviously a drive to try and get farmers to be more ecological, which goes to that environmental bit I've just been talking about with the ESG. So there's obviously a government initiative to reduce our carbon footprint. The banks are now jumping on the bandwagon and are prepared to reduce the interest rates for borrowers if they can improve their ESG creds. But the feet on the ground we're involved with a number of farms who are genuinely analyzing every ounce of data looking at every single aspect of their farming process and they are very focused on doing exactly the right thing for meeting the correct quality of the product they're trying to grow and fitting it in with the new you know this is how it should be done don't ever plow again sort of whatever fantasy and the danger is that policy and practicality don't actually meet. It's great when there is a policy that's determined to be sustainable. It might fit three years out of four, but the other year it completely screw up the whole farming process. And there's lots more to it. You know, it's it's one of those money for ticking a box that actually it's the wrong thing to do, but you've got to do it because that's how you get your money. That's where we're headed. This is all new ground, isn't it? It is new ground, and you know we're seeing now that in order for some of our fresh produce producers, some of our other clients who supply the food industry, the retailers now are demanding to see where businesses are becoming carbon neutral, be it in their packaging materials that they may use. So you're getting directives as to what you should do there. There are directives on, as I say, animal welfare, for example. There was a big push for outdoor reared pigs in this part of the world, as you know. But that blows with the wind. And at the moment where you've got these high commodity prices, are they prepared to pay English farmers more for their outdoor reared pigs than they are for the standard pigs that are coming in from Holland, for example? So you've yeah. always got economics that will override those. But that is the point, isn't it? Well, that's agriculture as we step into the futures. We've had some reasonably buoyant years in the cereal sector, but in the animal sector, they haven't. No. They can't compete with the Dutch pigs. No. They're a more efficient business. Outdoor pigs are an incredibly inefficient way of producing meat, like it or lump it. And anyway, Liz Truss has done a deal with Australia that means that you can do what the hell you like with animals, shove them in a lorry in two days without any water or food. And, you know, in other words, we're trying to compete on a playing field where we're negotiating with other countries from a deal done recently with Malaysia and palm oil. 
so palm oil can come in, which is an abhorrent product yep. for the world. But that's all part of Liz's deals. It's all about getting the money sector working in London. So we've got access to that. And in return, they can send their shite across here that has as much pesticide or whatever. It doesn't make any difference because the farming lobby can just be, oh, well, they don't really matter. And they don't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, on that palm oil, it wasn't that long ago where Iceland ran that campaign at Christmas, if you remember about the monkey in the jungles and the push against not having palm oil in certain of their products. That was timely at the time, but of course when economics gets tough, those decisions tend to fall by the wayside a bit. But I know it's going to be interesting to see, whilst we've still got this cost-of-living crisis, where the standards do fall, actually, and unfortunately for our pig farmers at the moment, they're not getting the prices, and we're seeing a lot of pig businesses um, close, which is really unfortunate. And this is not a new thing. It's been going on for a while. The thing for me is pigs today, it could be cereals tomorrow. It could be oil seeds have collapsed in price. Why is that? There's a whole host of, you know, our industry is not strong enough politically until there are too many solar farms, too many rewilded units getting the bulk of the subsidy money for, you know, people who can afford to do that. And we end up with a lack of ability to produce enough food. We're already importing more than we should. There's always a vocal, let's produce more in this country. And then there's absolutely no assistance in helping people achieve that. No tomatoes, because people couldn't afford the energy. Those are issues that, without a government actually with a food strategy and an industry that is strong enough to turn around and say no to the big boys, you're in a muddle. However, if the land diminishes, productive land diminishes enough, there will be a point, a tipping point, where people can just go, no, I'm not going to grow malting barley unless you pay me this much, because I'm going to put wheat in instead. No, and you're right about greenhouses. I know there are lots of greenhouses who've just switched off this winter and will do for this spring as well because they just can't afford to heat the greenhouses in order to provide the tomatoes. What it is leading to is survival of the fittest. So as a corporate lawyer, we're seeing an awful lot of consolidation in the sector. It's going to be harder and harder for the smaller players to be able to compete. They can't take these shocks that they've had in recent times. So unfortunately, there are going to be some businesses that are going to have to be bailed out. And so if you've got a strong balance sheet, which, Andrew, your business has got a strong balance sheet, there may well be opportunities out there for you because for those good, strong businesses that are well-managed businesses, then there are going to be opportunities. And that's what we are seeing an uptick in. So there is going to be a lot of transactions. Uh, I would say that, wouldn't I, as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer? But anyway, there are, uh, there, there are going to be opportunities for those who back themselves, back their particular markets. There will be opportunities, and there's no doubt about that. As a small independent merchant, we've got a good balance sheet considering it's nothing compared to Cargill's no. or ADM. They're billions. And, you know, the threat to the industry is people like me not existing. You know, if you allow a monopoly, then you're in trouble. And I think that, you know, consolidation in the sector is a phrase that slips off the tongue, doesn't it? Consolidation means lots of people go broke and they or they're no longer in business. And in the end, the model for that is not good for mankind, for this country, you name it less people employed, the money going outside the country, you know, yes, it's going to keep happening because no one's going to save it. And, you know, sure, if we got into a muddle, we'd come straight on to you and say, right, what can we do? And you'd be the guys negotiating on our behalf and know who to talk to. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of what we do is not only just doing the legal work, of course, it's doing that strategy to clients saying, right, if you're looking to expand, where should you be looking to expand to? Could it be that you divest? So what we are seeing, particularly on the grower community of our client base, they've been looking at actually how can they get more involved in the added value chain. So we had the good fortune to be approached by the mustard growers and the mint growers 
about eight years or so ago, and that has now resulted in the new mustard mill on the outskirts of Norwich, Condimentum, which is absolutely flying. That, that is a brilliant story, the fact that Coleman's Mustard, Norwich-based, and all of the history, and it was potentially by Unilever going to leave the county, and the growers and the team that you've got there that's done what they've done has kept it in this county, which is a vital thing. Oh, absolutely. As someone who's practised law in Norwich for 30 years, Norwich City fans see the Coleman's Mustard yeah. factory uh, across the road. Absolutely devastating news when a Unilever pulled out. I'm sure we all felt that. It's synonymous with Norwich. And to get involved in that transaction, which thankfully resulted in a mustard mill being built on the outskirts of Norwich, employing local people, exporting now our mustard flour around the world to some of these large corporates that you were talking about. It's been a massive success story. So it's not just flour, mustard flour and mint going to Unilever. It's going elsewhere now, which is a real good success story. So diversification, that's a big one. That's an enormous step, isn't it? You know, how does diversification to a farm is, well, convert that barn into a holiday let and all that. Yeah, I'll have a couple of tents on that field for six weeks in the summer. That's kind of partial. Yes, that's kind of a bit of money coming in. But you're basically saying if someone has a really big idea and they know it's a good idea, but they can't make it happen. You know, if someone came in your door with innocent, wide-eyed and went, I'm going to set up a grain merchanting business, I'm going to buy a site at Cantley, would you go, no, mate, get out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I say, their goal, the bold. I mean, obviously the Colmans had to start somewhere themselves. And, of course, they created what was... Colmans and is now part of the Unilever empire. Every business has got to start somewhere and Cargill would have started somewhere. And so, yeah, I mean, you're right. Clearly, there's got to be a business plan. That was hugely important for the investors in Condimentum. Would the business plan work? Of course, having an anchor customer in Unilever was hugely important to give a, the funders and the investors and the growers that confidence that they weren't just going to be burning their pound notes in the backyard. There was actually going to be something at the end of it. And again, you know, as you say, if they were looking to build a store, what would they do? Well, yeah, we would clearly advise them as to the pros and cons in doing that and ensuring that their position is adequately protected. Of course, it would be helpful if you've got a customer. And so with storage members, of course, you are your own customers because you're growing and you're storing your own product in the first instance. So that would give them some comfort. You've obviously got to make sure that you can acquire an asset that's been written down and you can buy it on the cheap because clearly the cost of building a brand new store is going to be outside the reach. So you've got to find a redundant asset, really. which Concrete and steel in place will save you a third of the cost. At yeah, least. yeah. And it could well be, as I say, as part of this consolidation, you will be seeing certain assets come to market that may a, be redundant, so you know, they're all moving now to these super mills or super stores, as it were, and some of the smaller ones will fall by the wayside, and, and there goes the brave as to whether you'd be prepared to club together well, as a members you know, cooperative so, or... or yes, yeah, so let's just fantasise and say a whole load of farmers are right, you know. We need to get together and we need to turn our produce into animal feed. Yeah. We're going we're yeah. to compete with these big old boys. And there's a mill there, because there's, there's an overcapacity mill in the county. Some of them are a little bit tired... That's a generous word. And assuming that you could like buy them and do them up a little bit and they don't fall to pieces on you, you know, as a project, if 10 farmers said, right, we're going to shut this in, we need some venture capital money, this is our model. You know, if the model didn't stack up, you'd say, sorry, mate, it doesn't stack up. When you no, you wouldn't. And that's why the one that I mentioned before worked, because you had a customer and you had a long-term customer. So clearly, if you're going to be expending money, you need to ensure that there's revenue there and where you're going to get your revenue from. So you would be tapping up, you know, the Cranswicks of this world around here and saying, well, look, are you going to buy my feed? Am I going to have a contract at the end of it if I'm going to take on this facility? 
once you've got the security of revenue streams, then it's going to be easier, of course, to get the investment. Yeah, it's probably a bad example of feed mill, isn't it? But, you know, the point is, out in the countryside, there's farmers who have, maybe they've got the potential to put a water mill up again, reinvigorate the energy that comes through a river, let's turn it into flour, I don't know, but somebody somewhere's got an idea, yeah, yeah, and, if, and they don't know what to do with it. Would you say, look, come and see me, I'll talk you through the dynamics of what you need to do, give the outline, I'll then let you go off and think about it, and if you really think you can pull those things off, then we'll be a goer. No, absolutely, and as I say, particularly where we've had clients that have had redundant buildings on their, their sites. We've, as you say, you mentioned holiday cottages earlier. That is one. Obviously, a lot of glamping use as well. But with staycation, there's been a huge amount of, obviously, interest in leisure destinations, holiday destinations now. And so you are just have to drive up past North Norfolk now to see more and more glamping pods around the county, which is fine. I've even got one client who's just bought a load of land and is just going to allow it to be free camping. Well, not say free camping, you can just pitch your tents. There's no water to speak of really at all. They've got access to a neighbouring facilities and he's just turning a buck by that. But no, the main area where, of course, I've said is where producers in particular can get more involved in the value chain is perhaps for a pack house. So you're talking about yeah, yeah. here where you've, you've got the grain stores here We've got a number of clients, of course, who are producers, but also packers as well. And there's numerous cooperatives that had been established historically to to do that. There are obviously new ways in which you can establish those organisations. It doesn't have to be under the cooperative model. It could be under a limited company model. Uh, Obviously, it won't necessarily have the same tax advantages, but that's by the by. But that's, again, with Asda and the like and IPL, they were buying up a lot of the pack houses themselves because Asda were going direct sourcing. Again, what's going to happen now with Asda, who knows, with the change of ownership there. What's happened at Morrison's, of course. Morrison's obviously was always famous for its vertical supply as well. It's now private equity owned. You can imagine those private equity boys thinking, do we need to be involved in manufacturing? So you could see a whole bunch of Morrison's assets come into market. So again, you know, if you were brave, would you be thinking, actually, should we take control of the abattoir or the pack house or, or whatever it is to get back into that added value rather than just be a grower not many abattoirs about that well exactly well exactly <laughs> maybe you set one up yeah but, or you know maybe take over a supermarket site yeah farmers cooperative owned supermarket site can you see that one <laughs> yes my potatoes are a bit wonky <laughs> well, there, well there are some very good examples aren't there of um, farm shops that have proved extremely valuable for farmers as long as you ensure that you stock up with local produce from your neighboring farms then it could well be a, a good success i mean you just have to watch clarkson's farm i'm sure we've all enjoyed watching that program over the last couple of series and i know he's an exception but he's, he's brilliant the reason he's brilliant is because he's brought to the fore this last series i mean you can be irritated with him yes in one of the meetings he said well you're not a farmer you're a broadcaster no he's a farmer he bought land he's a farmer so if you judge his farm on the basis of income it's true there's no money being made in that particular project which in itself is an eye-opener for people bearing in mind the amount of money tied up. What he highlighted in this last episode was that um, the government says diversify, and the planners are run by people who should have left their job in the 1970s. He said, right, I'm the chairman, I'm impartial, I'll be the decider if it's a draw, my vote will count. Right, all those against, he stuck his hand up. He should have kept his hand down and then stuck up at the end if he needed to. The point being, the diversification plan that coffee comes out with, or whoever, it's completely against what the local planners prepared to accept. They made him put... That roof on, you know, that roof, didn't make a fuss about that. But actually, he just got on and clearly just did that. 
but making him put those slate tiles on and a whole new roof was just vindictive, you know, policy from someone who's pissed off with him. Right, we'll get him back. We'll make him do that, otherwise we'll shut the shop down. That's him holding him up to account and going, look, yeah, Clarkson's Farm, I'm a big fan because he's in a very clever way highlighting the miseries out on farm that people just don't see. And farmers can't make that point without sounding like they're whinging all the time. No, and Jamie Oliver tried it, didn't he, with... Again, I go back to the story about outdoor reared pigs, of course. Mm. He was all for animal welfare, and that was in the news at the time. And I can remember I was acting for a very large pig grower and processor at the time, and it was great news for them because they had a spike in sales, and Mm. so, you know, Bowers were able to flog more pork cuts because there was a demand for British outdoor reared pork in Tesco, which was great. But Jamie's now moving on to other things, and it's less in the news. But when it was in the news... Everyone was actually thinking, do I really want to be buying caged meat Everyone's meat that's come from caged animals, I should say. Everyone's buying Dutch yeah. pork. Unfortunately, which is a real tragedy. It's not for the yeah. Dutch pig producer, and it's not, you know, the reality is they don't have outdoor pigs. They cut their costs dramatically, and people will buy the cheapest thing because they don't actually have a conscience when it comes down to it. No, no. Or they can turn a blind eye to it, look at a British flag and buy a Dutch pork. No, yeah. no. I'm old enough to be cynical, as you can tell, but... You know, our industry has, in my time, shrunk, you know, consolidation or whatever you want to call it. Is this cyclical? Is there some point when it becomes there's just three people left and everyone says, I can't bear it, and fresh companies start up? Well, I can remember when we advised on the sale of Bowers, you know, that was four large producers, and then all of a sudden it was down to three. That was um, obviously uh, 14 years or so ago now, perhaps even a bit longer. So that, at the time it was, oh, Christ, you know, there's this consolidation, but we've seen it in poultry. Bannum's obviously now no longer owned by the Folgers. That's no longer independent, so there's been a lot of consolidation. And as you say, the Competition and Markets Authority now is getting very hot on the sector. I'm involved in a transaction at the moment where I've got one of my competition partners who's trying to guide our clients through that process. What's going to be the persuasive arguments with the CMA in order to get this transaction through because it is a bit tight, um, the market? And that's because of the consolidation that's happened historically. There are fewer and fewer players, and ultimately, the CMA is there to protect you and I as, as consumers. So that's one thing you've always got to be very, very careful about. And you've got to have real expertise in this particular area because you've got to understand the intricacies of the arguments that could potentially work in order to try and get some of these deals through the CMA. Yeah, so the merger of Adams and Howling, Bannums and Dewey, is it going to be too big for the market to cope with? Is that what you're saying? Well, the good news is you're not in the same sector, so you might actually get away with it. No, if you Bannums, were, and Howling, Bannums are the same. We're all grain merchants. So oh, sorry, I, I thought yeah. you were talking about Bannum. I thought you were talking no, no. about Bannum poultry. No, 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 it's no a little joke for my colleagues in the industry. Yeah, I'll be chairman, all right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, That will get a laugh from somebody somewhere, I'm sure. And I'll get a text from Matthew. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so what next for you, though? Is it, can you see a really big thing about to happen? I suppose you're not allowed to say you have to come up with the old, I can't say, possibly. Well, what you have to remember is that the UK market is, notwithstanding we've had a change of government for the last two or three times over the last 12 months or so, but actually, we're a big market, so we've got nearly 60-odd, well, 68 million consumers on the whole, fairly wealthy consumers, so you're always going to attract international buyers. And as you know, you were talking about ownership of... UK industry, UK agribusiness, UK food producers, a lot of those now are foreign-owned. And the reason for that is because, of course, we are still a wealthy nation. 
fifth or sixth most prosperous nation in the world. We've got a stable banking environment, very low levels of corruption. So actually... That's the big thing. So actually, it's a good, safe place to do business. And as I say, 30% of Mills and Reeves' business is actually active for international clients. So we wouldn't be that busy if they didn't think that the UK market was a good place to invest. So if I was a betting man... We have seen, by the way, I should say that we've seen a bit of a cooling off from Europe of investment, that's partly because of the state of flux in the market at the moment with, with all of the cost of living, energy crisis, etc. But the US, if you think about it, I was doing deals with US buyers not that long ago when it was at 170, the exchange rate. You know, it's bouncing around 112, 113 now. So UK assets are 30, 40% cheaper than they were, if, if not more, than they were a few years ago. So actually, for a US investment, our assets are undervalued. And that's what I'm saying about the stock market. There's going to be a, more takeovers, unfortunately, of our PLCs, predominantly by sovereign wealth funds and private equity but, funds. I mean, that, to me, forgive my ignorance on this, but I'm pretty certain once you get owned by a foreign firm, that means they get the right to have some sort of management fee or some sort of thing where the tax goes missing from the UK coffers. Yeah, though of course they have certain ways. I mean, you've seen about the Amazons of this world and Starbucks not paying tax, even yeah. though they've got huge, huge Big operations American. here. And they're very clever about charging royalty fees for the use of IP and all that kind of stuff, which is quite a clever way of getting income well, they, out of the coffers. Bright, so. bright lot, those Americans, aren't they? Well, they've certainly... I mean, that's why, of course, governments around the world are trying to clamp down on those particular uh, Amazons of this world um, to try and make sure that they do pay fair tax. But no, I think, yeah, there are always going to be those who are going to be able to manipulate the tax systems, unfortunately. And Yeah, but the less owned in the UK, the more likely that is. And that's my little call. It's not going to make a difference to me, to my life, but it is in the long term a bad thing. And I urge everyone to be aware, you know, if you can trade locally, trade with a UK company where all taxes are about. I think that is your own conscious little movement towards helping, you know, yeah. otherwise the tax doesn't come in, does it? No, and, the, and that's why it's hugely important for us to promote what we're good at. So hence, that's why I gave a shout out earlier to Condimentum, because, you know, yeah. that didn't even exist, as I say, six or seven years ago now. It's attracting a lot of interest from these global food businesses who want English mustard flour, which is brilliant. Yeah. So that's a real success story. And as I say, there are, I mean, Cranswick, as I say, that's an interesting story that started off as a bunch of pig farmers up in that sort of Hull area mm. and uh, East Yorkshire. And look at it now. It's, it's a PLC. As Good. I say, I can remember all those years ago, 15 or so years ago, when we sold it there, share price was about £3. Look at the share price now. Yeah, it's no, almost pretty. increased 10 times in value from what it was. And but then, it's been acquisitive. You know, it's been hugely acquisitive. It's now branched out into poultry, as you know, with that super-duper new poultry facility up at I. So that's a huge investment by UK PLC yeah. in poultry capacity just down the road from here at I, Europe's biggest investment in a facility for a long, long time. Good, so good, good. good advert for Cranswick. We'll ask them to send some money in. But no, I'm delighted to see yeah. a place with Norfolk Consumer Mills investing in those mills and yeah. buying lots of products. We do a fair amount of business with them, and they're mates of ours, so mm. no, on our level, on our grain trade bit. So just I've got a question about Brexit, the yes, word I, yeah. I'm banned from using by a number of listeners because I was too biased. Has that impacted where we're we at now? Is everyone over it and it doesn't make a difference to what we're trying to achieve? Um, it's interesting in that we did see some of our continental 
clients all of a sudden either upstick and actually close their UK facilities. So there's a bit of that. We found some of our UK clients all of a sudden ringing us up and saying, look, we need to open up branches in Europe. Where could we open up? So our best friend firm that we use in in Ireland was very busy for a while as we were instructing them to set up subs and branches in Ireland so that they could have a trading operation outside of these shores. But conversely, we've also seen some investment in UK assets from European producers because they wanted a factory here. Even though there were clearly there was a free trade arrangement negotiated, there's still all the red tape, which is adding to a lot of costs to business. So conversely, it has added to some investment in the UK. So it's not clear cut. The biggest issue, and I'm sure if you talk to any, be it a grower or a producer or a packer or whatever it is, it's staff. That's been the biggest issue. And obviously, we could have a whole podcast on that topic alone. But now I think finally, the government is starting to wake up. I know um, you've obviously got Mark Gorton at TMP has been banging the drum very, very loudly in this part of the world for poultry producers to increase the amount of seasonal workers. It's the same with, of course, our grower clients as well on fresh produce and soft fruit. They're all clamouring for workers. So hopefully we'll see some relaxation of the rules around those seasonal workers because, let's face it, you and I are not going to be bending over picking spuds, are we? Uh, well, no one in the UK seems to want to do that, do they? Let's no, face no. it, they'd rather... And when you've got you know the levels of unemployment that you've got now, it's the lowest it's been since year dot. There just aren't the workers there. So that, I'd say that's the biggest impact. I mean, we're all well aware of that, of course. Mm, absolutely. Finally, I think just going back on something you mentioned earlier on, you mentioned I mean, we've obviously gone through the aspects of you as a lawyer and, and the various things you've been involved with. You mentioned being a business advisor. What exactly, how does that differentiate from the lawyer side of you? What does that mean? Yes, yeah, so being a trusted business advisor is, is really important where it's all about collaboration with the clients. So it's not just picking up the phone. Yes, Craig, thank you very much for that piece of advice, putting the phone down about it. It's actually really working collaboratively with the client, getting them to understand what works from them, getting to know what family issues they may have. It could be succession issues. I know you've got some sons in your business, which is great, but not everybody has. Just being able to advise the clients as to what their strategy should be, be it as regards diversification, should it be looking to rebank, for example, should it be looking to move a particular non-core asset on, is how to maximise value and minimise risk. So first and foremost, as a lawyer, it's about ensuring that those assets are safe, that the client's got. It's minimising risk for those assets being vulnerable in the future. So uh, you know, a lot of what we're doing is corporate reorganizations so we're moving assets around into different pots so you know if you're a business that owns everything in one company it may make a bit of sense to do a corporate restructuring so you've got property in a different corporate vehicle you've got perhaps the trading part of a business could be in another company and you have let's say in your case the storage in another company so if it went tits up pardon the expression in the future's funding business, it's not going to bring the whole house of cards down, as an example. So that would be where you're looking at trying to, as I say, not just pick up the phone and be reactive, but be far more proactive and sitting down with clients, trying to look at what their aims and objectives are and coming up with solutions that protect the crown jewels and, and as I yeah, say, I mean, deal with succession, explaining, etc. Explaining stuff outside the range of normal people's thinking, that what are the implications of this, this and this. Forgive me, I'm old school enough to know that 
if a part of my business went down, I would move heaven and earth to make sure everyone was paid correctly. I couldn't bear it, you know, protecting myself. But I guess, you know, that in reality, there's so much to think about that you plod along as an industry where you have bright ideas that make you money. You just simply can't have all of the thoughts that you should be doing. And succession is a, even with the son in the business, I've got other children, you know, it's, that is a really difficult subject because it changes month by month. It yep. changes. Yeah, it doesn't. It's, and again, it's how you bring on your second tier management. I'm not talking about your case, but just as a general observation, there are many different ways of incentivizing management. Obviously, that can be hugely important where there aren't the succession issues there, where you can't just pass it down to son or daughter and making sure that you tie people into your business could well be that you enter into some form of joint venture as an example with a bigger player you know there you go cargo there you go 50 percent to them see how you go on with that as an example <laughs> only joking um yeah you know a way of getting to know another business seeing whether they would be a good fit for your business having a put and call option over your remaining shares so it gives mm-hmm. you an exit those kind of things which just is a well thought through process because between you and me what happens 80 percent of the time is I'll get a phone call from a client who may not be a client. It may be someone who's been referred to us. And they'll say, I've I've agreed terms. I'm going to be selling my business. And that will have been a bolt out of the blue. They haven't prepared for it. So a lot of my role will be to get the business ready for sale in six weeks rather than six years. So that's why it's always better to think ahead. When am I the one to retire? What are my plans? Right, I need to be talking to my trusted business advisor to ensure that we're in a ready place. We're in the right place. We've got all of our contracts in place. And there aren't anything buried in the backyard that's going to come around to haunt us so that we're properly prepared for the process. And as I say, that's just been a bit more strategic because you're a busy man. I know you've just come back from a lovely holiday <laughs> in the Maldives, but we won't talk about that. Uh, but no, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you won't have time to think about these wider issues because you're busy furiously trying to make your business work. And it's sometimes it's just stepping back and thinking, actually, I need to just reflect a bit now and think, should I be setting up a family investment company? Should all of my shares be held personally? Should I get a company there? which is a holding, I could then get dividends across to that holding, that family investment company, and it can go off and do other things. So those kind of things yeah, that you could be which, thinking about. That, I mean, certainly it sounds quite personal, this conversation now, but the, the dynamic for other businesses, you know, and myself, I've had periods where you assess the situation, say, six months ago, and you put things in place, that, right, this is where we're at at the moment, and you write a will and you do all these things that are going to kind of hopefully tidy everything up but as I say things change and a much larger profit coming through or another diversification perhaps coming home with some goods it is a never-ending change of dynamics so at any point in time if I refresh my view on it in six months time it could be you know not complete change but largely unless maybe I do need a conversation with you yeah and it's challenging things as well because you know it's always useful to just challenge what the status quo is and think differently from time to time yeah, indeed. Okay, well, with that, thinking differently, which I'm not a specialist in, thank you very much for your time, Craig. That's been my pleasure. Thank you. Good. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio. 
a full-service creative agency specializing in websites, digital marketing, and branding. Get in touch to inquire with their friendly team on info at eastcoastdesignstudio.co.uk.